Today's episode is sponsored by Verve Leadership. Verve Leadership provides creativity-based coaching to individuals and organizations seeking to make greater impact in their work and have more fulfillment in their lives. Verve Leadership is pleased to offer a 20% discount on select coaching packages to Craft Industry Alliance podcast listeners. Visit verveleadership.com slash craft to learn more. Thank you so much, Verve Leadership. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 185 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we're talking about building a business as a watercolor artist with my guest, Anne Butera. Anne is a self-taught artist who finds inspiration in the beauty of her garden and the magic of nature. She works primarily in watercolor, but also loves challenging herself to try new things. She strives to seek out and celebrate life's little joys and daily graces. Anne writes the blog, My Giant Strawberry, teaches in person and online, and sells her art, designs, and fabric on her website and elsewhere on the web. Anne's paintings have been exhibited across the country, and her art and writing have been published in magazines and in the book Botanica. Anne Butera, welcome. Cool. Thanks so much for having me, Abby. It's so exciting to talk with you. And I love to get your newsletter when it arrives oh, in, thank my, you. in my inbox. It's like this bright little sunshine, little piece of joy. And it's always so inspiring and lovely to read. And we'll talk a little bit about your newsletter and newsletter strategy in general in a little while. But let's talk first about kind of the development of your career as an artist. So, um, uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. And when I was a child and all growing up, I dreamed of living in the country. And my parents had that dream, too. And we had a small backyard and my mom was a big gardener. And throughout my childhood, my mom transformed more and more of our backyard into gardens. And my dad would always get these mailings from this realty company looking for places that we would move to, which never happened during my childhood. But I think that dream and following along with all of his searching for property uh, helped fuel my dream of living in the countryside myself. Um, okay. And what, what did they do for work when you were a child? My dad was a professional musician. He was a church organist. He also played in um, a Jewish temple. He had so many different jobs. He would um, cobble together 
different streams of income. He was an editor for a magazine focused on the organ and other um, keyboard instruments like the harpsichord and piano, but mostly focused on organ. And he was very present in my childhood. Even though he had all these jobs and worked a lot of hours, he had a flexible schedule. So he was able to spend a lot of time with us. My mom was a stay-at-home mom a lot of the time. She also uh, went back to school when we were a little bit older and got a master's degree so that she could be a school librarian. And so she was also very creative and she sewed a lot of our clothing. If you look at family pictures, usually um, my mom and I and sometimes my brother and my dad would be wearing things that she had made. Also, she would make all sorts of gifts for people. She would make cards, always our yearly Christmas cards she would make. And also got cards that she would give to people as gifts. She did crochet and all kinds of different needlework. She still is a big cross-stitch person. So I had a lot of creativity in my childhood and lots of supplies that I could experiment with and play with. And so between being in the garden and being outside and um, having all these crafty materials to play with. It was a very nurturing environment. Also, books were a big part of my childhood. The library was probably one of my very favorite places. And we would go pick out books every week and bring them home. And my parents would always read to us. We would listen to a lot of audiobooks. Like if we would have a family vacation, we would listen to audiobooks in the car. And so it was a very nurturing, creative environment that I grew up in. Yeah, it sounds like it. And so when you were thinking about going to college and what you might want to do, what, what was your path? Well, when um, I was thinking of going to college, my plan was to study biology because I wanted to be a wildlife biologist. I fantasized about working in the field and observing wolves were one of my favorite animals. So I imagined myself studying wolves out in nature and I don't know how realistic a fantasy that was, um, especially since I didn't do things like go camping, so I didn't have that sort of experience. I didn't really like being outside in inclement weather, so maybe that wasn't very realistic either. But once I got to college, um, I had taken a lot of AP classes in high school, and so by the time I got to college, I was ready to take sophomore level biology classes. And then I took a lot of chemistry, (laughs) which, oh, I wish I hadn't because I didn't end up majoring in biology. Uh, And chemistry was very difficult for me, especially once I got to organic chemistry. But I took a creative writing class. And I'd always loved writing. 
that was another thing that I did when I was younger. I would write lots of stories and I took a creative writing class and suddenly everything changed and I didn't want to study biology anymore. I wanted to be a writer. And so I changed, well, I had never officially declared my major. Um, so I finally did and creative writing was what I settled on. So I guess it seems like a very abrupt <laughs> shift in, um, going from biology to creative writing. Uh, but I think those seeds had been planted throughout my childhood, my love of writing, my love of stories. And so that's what I did. And then graduating from college, I had no idea what I was going to do because um, there aren't really jobs where people say, hey, come write short stories for us. And so I saw this ad in the newspaper to work in a library and it was sort of a light bulb moment for me. And so I took that job and it was in the children's department, which I had always worked with children. I had been uh, a babysitter and I had been um, at our church. I was a helper with the Sunday school and I loved working with children. So I thought it would be a fun job while I figured out what I wanted to do. Right. And yeah. Yeah. And my, my daughter volunteers in the children's department at our library. So I feel like I have some sense of what that's like. Although was this in like a big city public library? It was, it was, um, at that point I was living in the suburbs of Cleveland and the, library system that I worked for had four branches. And so it was an outer ring suburb of Cleveland, very busy, um, very well funded at the time when I first started working there. And we had so many programs and it was really exciting and fun place to work because we would do all sorts of fun programming, story times, and We'd have puppet shows and all sorts of craft programs. And with my writing background, I did writing programs for kids. And we would go to all the schools and do programs in the schools. So it was a very creative job. And I did a lot of creative things there. And I started making one of the big projects. I started making felt board um, story kits where you take a story and create all the characters and props and things out of felt. And that was a big project I worked on. And everyone who I was working with thought I had an art degree. Um, but I didn't. And I just loved making things. And so they would always call on me to do any kind of crafty projects like that when we needed props for the puppet shows. I remember one time I was making all these paper mache vegetables for, for one story. So that sort of creativity and crafting was happening kind of without me even being aware of it, even though I didn't consider myself an artist and I didn't 
consider myself as that sort of creative person. It just was always part of what I did. Right. Okay. And so um, I, I know that eventually you sort of shifted out of that job um, and and into being self-employed um, as an artist. And so um, how did that happen? I mean, what were you, you – there must have been something that sort of um, – clicked for you that you needed to to make that move? There were a few things that were happening. The library system that I worked in, we were having more and more problems with behavior issues. And I had moved to a branch where there were a lot of unattended children. It was right next door to an elementary school. And every day we would have a big group of kids. I would say there were probably at least 30 kids who would come over. Some of them were very, very young, too young to be on their own. So let's say there would be a third grader watching a kindergartner where there needed to be an adult with these children. We were working with the police all the time. We did have some violent incidents. And so things just were getting so more and more stressful. And I was dealing less with the fun, creative parts of the job and more with keeping control of the environment. And it was just not fun anymore and not fulfilling for me. In my um, personal life, I was doing more and more creative things. Uh, I had my own garden by that point and I had been learning how to sew and doing things like crochet. And I also had been writing a blog, which no longer exists, but that taking photos for that and doing that sort of creative writing was an outlet for me. I didn't at the time when I started that, I didn't think, oh, this is going to be my career. But things were getting more and more to a head. Also, at the same time, my parents were finally deciding they were going to get their place in the country. And my mom had retired. And they were really serious about getting someplace. And so they found somewhere they wanted to move. They were going to buy it. And I decided I would quit my job, move with my mom to their little farmette and help her get things settled while my dad finished things up in the Chicago area and got their house on the market to sell. My husband would get our house on the market to sell and eventually we would all move. My husband and I would find a place for ourselves and that was the plan. And during that time, I also, my plan was to open an Etsy shop and sell some of the things that I had been making. At that point, I was making jewelry, crocheted jewelry, and I was making handbags, crocheted handbags and sewn handbags. And I didn't really have a clear plan. Also, at that point, I was not doing things like painting or anything like that. But I wanted, I guess in the back of my mind, I always knew that I wanted to try that. But I figured, okay, so here's my 
I was giving myself an ultimatum. I would see how things would work creating this shop. And I, I think I was very naive at that point, just believing that I could take this leap and that everything would fall into place. And I guess eventually things did fall into place, but um, my plan of supporting myself with this Etsy shop did not come to fruition. And of course, thinking back now, I realize, of course, it wouldn't work because I had no clear idea of what that would look like or how many hours would go into the projects I was creating and how it's it wasn't a sustainable idea. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to walk back just briefly. So oh, sure, sure, I sure. think it's so interesting um, to somebody who just came onto my giant strawberry now and discovered Anne Butera now, you know, looked at your, um, you know, you're one of the highest performing Skillshare classes now on, in watercolor and, you know, might say, wow, this is just so cohesive. Um, <laughs> you know, this is an idea. Like, obviously, this is somebody who, you know, is a self-taught artist, but is somebody who understands what it is they want to do and, and how it is they want to encourage other people to do something similar. Um, but what people may not understand or realize is that there was a whole other thing that came before. And what you're saying is not only was there, you know, another Etsy shop before with other products that were kind of scattered um, that were not necessarily sustainable or profitable, um, or cohesive, but there was also even another blog that came before. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can just talk a little bit, what was this other blog and what, what, what was on it? Well, I think it was, I don't even remember all of the sorts of posts that I did, but a lot of it was about what was happening in my garden and, the projects I was working on, the sewing projects, and also there were just random things that I would write about. But eventually, it took it took me a very long time, I think, to understand what it was that I wanted. And I think part of it was not that I didn't know, but that I was afraid to admit what I really wanted. I was afraid to admit that I wanted to be a painter because I had no background in painting and I had no real background in art in terms of training to be an artist. And I've seen that again and again in my students and in people who read my blog or who subscribe to my newsletter. There's a big fear around admitting that you're an artist or calling yourself an artist as if that's a special title that only certain people are allowed to use. And I know I felt that way myself. And there was a time I was going to a, an art walk. It was a, an event where people would open their studios and all these art shops were open and people could come from long distance, long distances and come to these shops and see people working. And 
I was in one shop. This was in the beginning. I had just started painting. I was still doing a lot of sewing and crochet and stuff like that. And the woman working in the shop said, are there any artists here in the shop today? And I said, no, (laughs) I mean, I am not an artist. And that was what I remember thinking to myself. I am not an artist, although I clearly was because I was making art. I was just afraid to call myself that. And I was afraid to admit that that's who I was and what I wanted to be. And so it took me a while to come around and to start painting. And then to, and especially since when I first started painting, I didn't know what I was doing and my paintings were not good. But I wanted to keep going and I wanted to learn. And I think that roundabout process that I took and me discovering not only how to paint, but that that's what I really wanted to do. I think that was an important part of my whole journey because it helped me to clarify who I am, who I want to be, and what I want my life to look like. And I think a lot of people that I've talked to, either students or people who read my blog, there's sometimes they say, oh, I don't I don't know what I want to do or I'm not creative. And I think maybe in some cases that's true, but I think it's a lot more common that people have the fear of admitting what it is that they want because they're afraid of failing or afraid of someone looking at what they're creating and saying, oh, well, that's not art or my second grader could have done that. And creativity and the things that we create are so personal that it's really hard to have someone look at things critically. And especially when we're looking at them critically and seeing them fall short of what our vision is. I want to take a moment now to hear from our sponsor, Lauren Lambrecht from Verve Leadership. I'm Lauren Lambrecht. And I'm with Verve Leadership. And you are a coach. Why coaching? Well, I think that coaching is a really powerful way to have support and accountability in achieving any goal that you may have. Um, And it really represents having an impartial, inquisitive partner on your side to help you brainstorm and to plan, to challenge you, and to also celebrate your successes. And who do you work with in particular? Well, I'm a creative myself. And so I personally really love working with small business owners who are in the creative field. What I've found over time is that small business owners are so focused on managing their businesses that they may not pay as much attention to leading their businesses and growing their own personal leadership skills like empathy or time management or even just self-awareness. And then even beyond that, I find that people get so absorbed in running the business that they lose their sense of self. And so I just really love working with individuals who are dealing with any of those sort of challenges and really helping them to have a more holistic approach to their work. And Lauren, why do you think people choose to work with you in particular? Well, I am a trained, certified, and credentialed coach 
which you don't always find. You have a lot of people out there who claim to be coaches, but don't have that training and um, that skill set. Um, so that's a big aspect of it. I also have more than 15 years of experience working with individuals and team as a coach. And generally speaking, I'm seen as being warm and inviting. I create a safe space for deep reflection. And I ask hard questions, but in a gentle way. And more than anything else, I'm fully invested in my client's success. And do you have any current offers or promotions to share with our audience? Yeah, of course. So I always offer complimentary exploration sessions just so that we can get to know each other and see if we'd work well together. So that's something that I will always do. But specifically this year, I'm offering some really exciting packages focused on self-awareness and personal productivity. And those are for people who really want to harness their strengths and work through the behaviors that are keeping them stuck. And so for those, I'm really happy to offer a 20% discount to Craft Industry Alliance members and affiliates and listeners to this podcast uh, for those particular packages. And where can we find out more? So I'm at Verve Leadership on all the socials. And my website is verveleadership.com. Thank you so much, Lauren. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Verve Leadership. And now back to my conversation with Anne. So you ended up sort of deleting that blog and then also that shop, that initial set of products. And so was there a moment when you said, okay, wait a minute, I'm going to 100% pivot? There was. And the blog that I had been writing, um, I quit that in 2010 and 2010 was when I moved with my mom and that's when I started painting and I started a new blog and it was just focused on my creative activities and for a while as I was learning to paint I was still doing the other things for a long time actually um And I think it was 2015, maybe, I came to realize, okay, I have to make a decision. I can't do both of these things and put my full focus on both of them. And I had sort of resisted for a long time deciding one way or another and... I was thinking I can do I can do it all, but I thought I really needed to be a lot more cohesive. And so I realized that painting was where I was really passionate. And if I was going to have any success with my painting, I would have to work on that 100 percent of the time. And of course, I mean, I still do other crafting, but my main focus is painting. So I think it was around 2014 or 2015 when I came to that realization, I needed to do just painting as my focus for my business. And you, that move that you made out to your parents where they, they were in Wisconsin, right? Uh In this rural setting. Um, to be with your mom and help her get her farm 
set up and things, it didn't really work, right? Like you ended up having to come back. Yeah. It was horrible. And um, that was in 2011. Um, The housing market was terrible in Cleveland. And my husband was stressed out in his job there and being alone while being separated from him was so difficult for us. And I said, okay, this isn't working. I'm going to move back. Um, I was really stressed out. My relationship with my parents was strained. My relationship with my husband was strained. I really didn't know what I was going to do. I did not want to go back to working in the library because it was too toxic an environment. Um, I ended up taking a job in a bookstore And so I did that while I was doing crafting and still painting. And during that really dark period where I was doubting everything, I began a practice that is still important to me today. And that is what I um, call writing joy lists. And so to help me find joy in my life and to help me move forward, I would look around me and see things that were beautiful, that were joyful, and I would write them down. And it was this sort of gratitude practice that helped me turn myself around. And it helped me get clearer about what I wanted for my life. And I wanted to have the joyful, beautiful life that I had envisioned and that was my plan even though things hadn't worked out the way that I wanted them to writing those joy lists and focusing on seeing the beautiful parts of life and focusing on making things focusing on painting that really made a difference for me and helped me get back on track and can you give us just an example If you were to make a joy list like today, what would be on a joy list? Well, uh, lots of parts of nature would be on a joy list. So looking out my window and noticing a woodpecker at the, the bird feeder, something like that would be on my joy list. If it was a sunny day, sunshine would always play highly on my joy list because sunshine always makes me feel good. Things like the smell of the tea that I just brewed. Just little details like that would show up on my joy lists again and again. Or wearing my favorite handmade dress. Things like that. Okay. Yeah. Just things to be grateful for and Mm -hmm. to notice that can help you to slow down and lift your spirits. That's great. And I think something that all of us could incorporate into our daily practice. Um, so I think, yeah, I think it's really important. And just being open and noticing things makes a huge difference in my life in terms of my creativity too, because I think so often we move through our lives quickly without paying attention to what's going on around us. And for me, it's really important to be aware of what's going on because that's directly where I find my inspiration for my art. 
Right. Okay, so you um, you did eventually make it out <laughs> to join your parents in this rural setting, mm-hmm. um, and that's where you are now. Right. We are in town. Um, my parents live about five miles outside of town, and eventually I would like to live outside of town. But for now, we're in town, which is really convenient. We can walk a lot of places. Uh, for a while, I was working in the library in town. And so I would walk there. Um, my husband, he eventually opened a little shop. He is a Mac person. He worked for the Apple um, store in Cleveland He was a trainer there, and then he was um, a, what do they call them? I guess genius, where you would, he would do repairs for people. And then when we moved here, he first was doing support over the phone for them. And eventually, he started repairing people's computers from our home. And then he worked, he opened a little shop. So he worked. Uh, he walks to work, uh, brings one of our dogs with him. So it's very convenient being in town, but I would eventually like to be out with a little more space. And our yard is very small and I've been tearing up more and more of our grass to replace it with gardens, but eventually I'm going to run out of room and I'd like a little bit more space. Nice. And um, I'm so glad you, you got <laughs> to do what you had intended. And um, and so now let's just focus a little bit on the business that you've built online. So you have your blog, My Giant Strawberry, and you have a lot of different things that you do that kind of stem from there. Um, and one of them is teaching, um, teaching online. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how you first began doing that and um, and how that's developed over the years, what you've learned over time about teaching online and um, and the success you've had there? Sure. And it's kind of funny because a lot of the things that I've done, I've sort of fallen into and opportunities have come to me without me seeking them out. And teaching on Skillshare is one of those things. I was approached by someone saying, hey, would you like to teach on Skillshare? And that was in 2016. And I thought, no, I can't can't teach. I barely, um, I would not consider myself an expert. I can call myself an artist, but I wouldn't consider myself an expert and I wouldn't know what to teach. But that, I guess, planted a little seed. And I thought, well, okay, I can try this. And so I did a class. They had um, a teach challenge where they would show you what goes into a class. And for a month, you would learn how to put together a class. And by the end of the month, you'll have your class and So I did that, and my first class was getting started with a botanical sketchbook because at that point, I had finally come to embrace sketchbooks as part of my art practice and was very passionate about them. And so I thought, okay, I can 
teach people how to go about creating a sketchbook, um, how to choose the right book for them, coming up with ideas of what to do on its pages. And although looking back at the class now, there are a lot of things that I would do differently and a lot of things that I kind of cringe about about the class, but it did really well. And that success, I guess, boosted my confidence. And so I thought, hey, this is pretty cool. Also, it was nice to have that additional stream of income. And so it just sort of took off from there. And it's been really fun to come up with different class ideas. And I always consult my students and ask them, what would you like to learn? And from them, I have gotten some great ideas And so I think right now, I think I have 23 classes. That's Uh, amazing, Anne. (laughs) (laughs) My goodness. It makes up a good percentage of my income. And at the time, before I started teaching there, I would never have envisioned that that would be such a big part of my business. But I really love it, especially because as a self-taught artist who struggled for a long time with self-doubt and struggled for a long time not being able to call myself an artist and not being able to believe, I guess I did believe, but um, struggling with believing if you didn't go to art school you can't really be an artist or you can't learn on your own. And that is so not true. And I think the only way that you can learn how to make art is by making art. Even if you do go to art school, you're the one who has to make the art and do the effort and put the work into it. And so that background has helped give me a perspective on teaching that, um, I think is a little bit different. Do you have any tips for someone who wants to start teaching either online in general or on Skillshare in particular, as far as, you know, I I may be structuring the class, you know, or figuring out um, just the nuts and bolts of what makes a class good as far as length or as far as content is concerned, what people want to see, what people end up selecting when they're on Skillshare, um, or just kind of how you've gone about figuring out how to record these sorts of things. Any any kind of, you know, now that you're a veteran, <laughs> you've done 23 <laughs> of these, um, any kind of tips for people who want to get into teaching online? Well, my first tip would be just to start. Um, You're going to have to start somewhere. There's a huge learning curve. For me, I have slowly upped my recording game. And so at first, actually with the first class, this old video camera that ended, I had filmed a whole lot of it. I And then after that, I realized that the quality of that old video camera was not good enough for the class. So I had to refilm things. And right now I'm using my iPhone primarily for filming. 
Um, I had another Canon camera that I was using for a while, but um, for me, for now, it's easiest just to use my iPhone. And I actually have two iPhones that I use. That works perfectly, and the quality is good. Uh, the other thing that was hard was editing. Now it comes as second nature. So I think that can be intimidating for people too, having to learn new software. You can do it. Just uh, get started and you can learn as you go. Uh, lighting was something else that I struggled with. And so now I use supplemental lighting as well as natural light, a combination of both. Uh, just start where you are and you can always improve all of the aspects of your class in terms of getting people to watch your class on Skillshare. It's really important to have a good class trailer being able to present what the class is about in a short amount of time that um, on Skillshare recommended to be no more than two minutes. When I first started, that was the thing that I wanted to do first, but I realized that it, that is the best thing to do at the end because all of the bits of the class are already filmed. You can use that as part of the trailer. And so presenting what you're teaching in your class, and my classes tend to run long. They're usually over an hour. And so distilling everything into a short intro, but I find that to be fun actually so showing a little bit of everything but also keeping some mystery so people want to learn more that's important um also just keeping things really structured and breaking them down into understandable bits that's important for your class um also on skillshare having a project and in having each of the parts of the class build to a finished project. A lot of my classes around are around sketchbooks. And so I'll have multiple ideas of what people can create in their sketchbooks uh, so that they can go on and keep creating without having someone showing them what to do. I think that um, those are all really good tips, whether you're on Skillshare or not. I think right. filming a trailer is a really good idea for all online classes. And I think the idea of filming it at the end when the class is already completed, in other words, you've completed filming the class, mm -hmm. is a really good idea. And I know when I did my Creative Live class, that was the last thing that we filmed was the trailer. Um, mm -hmm. And you might think you should film it in the beginning, but really you should film it in the end. So right. that's that's a great tip. And I also think the idea of having a finished project is something that people want. Um, and I know like when you do a book proposal, for example, you know, publishers really want projects in books. And I think some of us who are designers um, feel like, oh, well, we want to teach the skills and teach you how to do it yourself and design your own projects. But from the consumer perspective, people really want to know how to make a project that looks 
like the project presented. And, um, and that doesn't mean they don't want to be creative. They do, but they just want to, to come away with a finished project, feel satisfied, feeling right. satisfied, you know, so it is, I think, and that is actually a really helpful tip. Um, if you are creating an art based, pro- um, class to have a finished project, which isn't to say there can't be, information about how to keep going or how to iterate, but to have that finished project does um, create something more attractive to the consumer. Well, that's also something that I learned teaching classes in person. Uh, I was teaching some watercolor classes uh, with people in person before COVID and I thought, okay, I will have people choose what flowers they want to paint and they can all bring a different flower to class and they'll just get started and work on their flowers. But that did not happen. And people didn't want to be left on their own to figure out what they wanted to paint. They wanted to be told by me, this is what we're going to paint and this is how we're going to paint it. And that was something that I had trouble wrapping my head around because I thought, well, why does everyone want to paint the same thing? But I understand now it helps them. It helps them see the whole process without having to invent it themselves. Yes. And, you know, and I feel like as a person who designs patterns, you know, the, when the consumer wants to buy a pattern and they want the finished project that they make to look like the pattern that's pictured on the cover. And that means they need to know exactly where to buy the fabric used to make the sample. Mm-hmm. So they need to know the exact colorway. They need to know where to buy it, exactly what brand it is, etc. And so uh, you may think, well, that seems not creative, but that person is being creative in that moment. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they're buying the pattern. Um, and it's just a different mindset. Um, so it is interesting. And, and I think, you know, you are not the consumer here. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, so those are some really, really helpful tips. And also, thirdly, to say, teach in person before you create these online classes. So take your idea, even if it's a group of friends or just a small group of people in your local community. Um, but you you saw from doing that, that you know, what you expected where everybody was going to bring their own flower and, and have at it wasn't what, what actually happened. And then that can really inform the way that you structure the class that you're going to teach online. So, because you don't have the feedback, you don't have people raising their hand, asking questions, um, looking up at you with a, <laughs> with a, a stare that, that, that is informing you of certain things. Um, they're not right there. And so you need to have that under your belt before you can can, um, you know, necessarily create a class out of thin air. So those are really, really helpful tips. Um, I wanted to ask you, you have other income streams that you have put together beyond teaching. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what some of those are. Sure. I sell my original paintings and also prints of my art I do commission work. I sell some products. The big seller is always my calendar. I create a calendar every year and 
many people who come back year after year wanting my calendar and some people who buy 10 calendars or more to give as gifts to people. So that's always one of my favorite things. I really love putting them together and I love knowing that so many people enjoy them. So there's the calendar. I also have fabric and other products on Spoonflower and I have a tea towel calendar I make every year for Spoonflower. They have a contest for tea towel calendars every fall and so I make one and enter that into the contest and I have people who come back and purchase those so that's one and then another product that has been popular on Spoonflower is wallpaper so a lot of my designs are available as wallpaper I also sell note cards that I have printed with design with my designs. So there are a few things like that. Okay. And all of this I feel like is really sort of um I want I mean you have the blog and you write on the blog I think weekly. Um mm-hmm. and then all of this I feel like is maybe rooted I would say, you could correct me if I'm wrong, um, sort of tactically in the newsletter. Um, and the newsletter um, is where you you talk about, you know, the, the new classes and also the new you know, the products that are for sale, the calendar, um, different things that you're doing, what's what's been on the blog. Um, but you also round up things that have been inspiring you from other places on the web, things you've read recently, um, inspirational posts from other people, inspirational classes, products, other kinds of things that you have found. Then um, you send that out and there, it's, it's really like a letter to your newsletter readers. It has a photo of you at the bottom and it feels personal. You're reflecting on your own creative life. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the newsletter and about how it works for your business strategy too? Sure. Uh, I started writing my newsletter without really knowing what I was doing and without having too much of a plan for it. I think I knew that it was a good idea to have a newsletter. And at first, I think I just looked at it as an extension of my blog. But I didn't want it to be just the same thing that is on my blog. So I wanted it to talk about different, often similar things, but I wanted it to be special. So people wouldn't be getting the same thing, just rehashed. And there were a few newsletters I was getting that did have roundups of information. And yours, Abby, was one of them. And that sort of newsletter I always found so interesting and inspiring. And I loved the idea of just sharing things that you've discovered. And also, um, for me, sharing things that I'm thinking about. And I looked at it less as, okay, I'm going to be selling things to my customers or the people who are reading my newsletter and more that I just want to make a connection with them because I think for one thing that's very important for a business to have a connection with their customers, 
But also as an artist who works by myself, I just like having a connection with the people who are either buying my art or taking my classes. And I saw this as a way to do that. And over time, I have developed it more and it has grown quite a bit. And I just love sending it out to people. I love sharing things that I think are interesting. I love getting emails back from people. And so just a really wonderful way, especially this year with people feeling more isolated, a great way to make connections with people. And also, I love introducing people to artists that they may not know about. And so that in my newsletter, that's one way that I do that. I also do that on my blog through the interviews that I do. Because I think it's so important for artists to help lift one another up. And so that's one way I do it. I remember reading something somewhere. If you can't buy something from an artist and support them that way, then sharing them with somebody else who may buy something from them is a wonderful way to help support them. And so I really embraced that idea and that's been part of my blog and it's been part of my newsletter because I think we can all help each other grow by supporting one another like that. I fully embrace that idea. And do you feel that your sales, I mean, I, I first of all, two things. One is the fact that you love sending your newsletter out is such a good sign because it means that you're putting things in it that you know are like a gift for your readers. And so you don't feel like you're spamming them. And that's always something that people are like, oh, I don't want to spam people. I don't want to clog up their email inbox, you know? And so obviously that's not what your newsletter is. And you figured out a way to make it into a present for them. And that's mm-hmm. truly what it feels like. And so that's, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> um, and the other thing is, um, do you feel like your sales though do increase or do you feel like they would be what they are now for any of these income streams that we referred to if you did, if you didn't have it? It took a very long time for me to see results from my newsletter. But now every time I send it out, I do see sales go up or more people signing up for my classes. So that I think um, I don't know if it was last year that I started seeing the direct results of it. But um, yes, definitely it is an important part now of my business. Okay. Yeah. And I think that that's great. And it is a long-term strategy. And that is definitely something to be honest and clear about. It is not an immediate (laughs) strategy. Um, But the nice thing about a newsletter strategy, and as you can tell, I'm like a newsletter evangelist, but is that it is a long-term strategy, but I think it's the one worth investing in because you own those, you own that list in a way that you don't elsewhere. So mm-hmm. it's worth investing in because it's the one you get to keep. So right. that's and why. And it's a direct connection with people that you don't get in the same way as you would if you are posting on social media. I think it's a lot more personal. Because it's private. It's, right. It's one-to-one, which is really, really different from being in a public feed. 
Um, mm-hmm. And there's nice things about being in a public feed. You get that oh, yeah. social aspect. But it is more personal and private, which is also very lovely. Um, and so, yeah, totally. Great. Um, so I wanted to make sure we get to your recommendations. Oh, right. This has been so great. Um, so you wanted to recommend some really nice things that I think um, listeners will totally be into. So the first one was Oracle Cards from Lisa Estabrook's Soulflower Plant Spirit Oracle. So what is this? So, okay. Um, the Lisa Estabrook is an artist that I'm not sure if I first discovered her on Instagram or I think that's probably where I found her. She is also a botanical watercolor artist and she, her main product is this plant spirit oracle deck and I can't remember how many cards are in it but there's quite a few and each card is a different plant and on the card there's a little write-up of what that plant spirit represents and so I know it sounds a little weird but um, I love using the deck and shuffling it and picking out a card and listening to what that card is telling you. And the way I use it is by taking time just to think about the meaning. And I know one of the cards is a rose and the rose represents joy. And just thinking about what that means for you in that moment. And I use it with my journal. I'm a big journaler. I've written um, in my journals my entire life and being able to use that as just a prompt of thinking about what's happening in my life what might I need to work on and I have another well I have two other decks from Jessica Swift her decks are with animals they're animal allies and so she has a a little write-up that goes with the decks and tells you what that animal represents. And sometimes I'll use the two decks together and pull one card from the plant oracle deck and one card from the animal deck. And it's so strange because sometimes the same sort of message is coming from both decks. And so I know, okay, that's really something I need to be thinking about. And I know it sounds kind of woo-woo and out there, but it's just been so interesting to me how that works. The other thing that I love about both of these artists' decks is that they're so beautiful. They have their art on them. Um, The decks come in beautiful boxes, and it's just a wonderful product and such a, um, a beautiful thing to interact with and a great, such a supporter of supporting artists directly and so buying these sorts of products from artists is a great way to do that lovely totally lovely and a neat product to make as an artist oh yeah yeah a great challenge too um Mm -hmm. okay and then sketchbooks um i know people are always wondering what kind of sketchbook do you use um so you have a specific one here it's a canton xl mixed media spiral bound sketchbook Right. That's one of my favorite sketchbooks. I have so many different sketchbooks and I've tried so many over the years. And I know when I first was starting working with them, 
I was thinking, okay, if I find the right sketchbook, it's going to make me create beautiful art. And that (laughs) is not necessarily the case. And one thing that I have found, people buy these really fancy, beautiful sketchbooks, and then they're afraid to work in them. And so these Canson mixed media books, they're spiral bound, they're not very pretty, but the paper is really nice and it works really well with lots of different media. And it was Mia Whittemore who recommended them to me and I hadn't really considered them before that. I would always pick out things that I thought were prettier, but these it it gives you a freedom to create without feeling like you need to create something that looks perfect. And so I use them. I've filled up, I think, maybe three of them so far. And I have another one that I'm working on. And I could write notes to myself in them. The paper is nice for writing with pencil or pen. I can paint in them. I can collage things in there. And sketchbooks are really my way of playing and being free and coming up with ideas. I use them if I'm working on a commission or if I'm working on a new piece for myself. um, I can sketch out all sorts of ideas. They can be messy and it doesn't matter because it's just for me. And so that's my favorite sketchbook to use for that sort of idea generating and play. And I love that they're not too pretty. That's the key piece of it. Right. And they're inexpensive. So you don't feel like, oh, I'm wasting this paper. Um, I And I'll say the only paper I believe is wasted is if you don't use it. So um, that's, I guess, a, dif- a different way of looking at it. But having paper that's not too expensive, you don't feel like you have to create something nice. <laughs> and then you wanted to recommend a seed catalog called Botanical Interests. Yes. Well, during the winter, I love getting seed catalogs in the mail and I will pour over them and write big lists of everything I want to grow in my garden. And the Botanical Interests catalog are very beautiful. They are illustrated with watercolor illustrations, which, of course, I love. And they also have a great variety of different kinds of seeds. So there's lots of vegetable seeds, lots of herbs, lots of flowers, lots of information about the plants. And they always have a lot of reader recommendations of what their favorite things are. And so I'm always curious, oh, what do people like to grow? So last year I bought this um, yellow squash that was one of the reader recommendations, which was called Cube of Butter. And just reading about how much someone loved growing that made me want to grow that too. And it was a really great plant to grow. So yeah, that's one of my favorite catalogs. Wonderful and great for wintertime inspiration. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Where where I am right now, it is covered in snow. So <laughs> yeah, that would be perfect. Well, Anne, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. Oh, thank you so much, Abby. It was great. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was sponsored by Verve Leadership. Verve Leadership provides creativity-based coaching 
to individuals and organizations seeking to make a greater impact in their work and have more fulfillment in their lives. Verve Leadership is pleased to offer a 20% discount on select coaching packages to Craft Industry Alliance podcast listeners. Visit verveleadership.com slash craft to learn more. Thank you so much, Verve Leadership. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. And when you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.